Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is John Van Lunen, and you are listening to Treasures of the Outer Banks, episode 18. In this episode, I have John Wright from Sanctuary Vineyards. Sanctuary Vineyards is located in Jarvisburg, which is part of Kurtuck County, just across the bridge. And I'll tell you, you know, when most of us come to the Outer Banks, the first thing or the only thing we think about is get to the beach, get to the beach, get to the beach. And I tell you, if you have the time to backtrack or stop on the way in or stop on the way out, you really want to stop by Sanctuary Vineyards. We had an excellent talk. We sat down in the back of the shop uh, where they do the fermenting and all that good stuff. And we talked about everything. Uh, This is uh, a bit of a long uh, conversation, but it was uh, so interesting. John is a wealth of information. He's lived here his entire life, except for a little bit of time away at college. And he knows the business. He knows the area. He knows the business. I mean, and we start from the ground up. We talk about, you know, his family and how they got here. We talk about the the development in, in Currituck County and just what it's been like. Uh, living on a farm and, and having you know a big footprint in the community like that you know they, they own waterfront property um, they're familiar with Dews Island and the hunt club over there we talk about that very briefly his education was in economics at Chapel Hill but he kind of quickly dumped that and, and just embraced the family agricultural business and then they started the the winery um, and we go into that and he's obviously learned a lot about that. He knows the science behind it, um, the agriculture behind it. And, and the one interesting thing that I, I got out of this uh, amongst many interesting things that I found out was that being a winery combines science, nature, the environment and time. And you do all this work to get the, the vineyard to a certain point. Then each year, you do more work to, to get that uh, vineyard to produce something that is, is going to make a special wine. And then, of course, you have to you use a little bit of science. You got to check the chemicals. You got to maybe combine some things. You got to maybe balance some things out and that type of thing. And at the end of the season, after you've fermented everything and bottled it, it's basically a work of art. You, you, you've done all this work and you've produced this product and hopefully other people enjoy it and and only time will tell and then once you put it out there it's out there for everybody unless of course you wanted to throw it away but it's 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 out there for the record they have won multiple awards in wines uh, in north carolina so they're obviously putting out a great product and they're also doing a lot of great stuff entertaining Uh, at the end of the talk uh I allow him to talk about the big Kershuk event that's happening uh, this Saturday, right after Thanksgiving. And it sounds like a blast, and I really got to get to it. I mean, I think it's $60 for a ticket. You can just eat all you want, crabs, oysters. There'll be beer and wine there, of course, and entertainment. And it just sounds like a great time. So definitely something to check out. Uh, His website is SanctuaryVineyards.com. Cotton Gin is a retail store. Uh, store right next door um, more or less right next door and they have other branches on the beach uh, and that is part of the family as well Um, cottongin.com will get you there and and some of the beer companies that are going to be at the Kershuk this weekend are Seven Sounds and you can find their information they're from Elizabeth City relatively new uh, brewery and you can find their information at sevensounds.beer I didn't know that was a thing dot beer 
and also Swells of Brewing is a new brewery on the Outer Banks. It's in Kildova Hills on the Beach Road. Very cool place, uh, swellsofbrewing.com if you want to check out some of their products. But they'll be at the Kershaw this weekend. And again, you know, just a great story. We're talking about preservation of Kirtuck County. Uh, we're talking about lifestyle, agriculture. Uh, just the whole nine yards and and he just weaves a little bit of history and science in there uh, just for kicks so um, i think you will like this uh, talk with john wright of sanctuary vineyard so sit back and relax so seventh generation right in kurtuck county and obviously your family's been on this farm for a long time T tell me about how far back you can think of this farm and and how long they've been here uh, so my family had come across from Duck um, in the 1800s, but we're not a, one of the original Currituck landowning families. And so accumulated farmland um, early on by like sharecropping, like, you know, farming for other families, um, tending smaller lots and grew the farm in that way um, initially with all sorts of crops, but becoming more narrowly defined recently. It's like corn, wheat, and soybeans, but there was a time where uh, we would grow um, melons, sweet potatoes, um, pack them on the farm, send them north. Um, we uh, accumulated some land during the Great Depression. Um, during the Great Depression, um, a lot of the land had to be sold off, and so we were able to add some parcels there. Right. Um, we've just never really sold any land, and so we've been able to maintain the same footprint, which is really good um, now to be able to um, diversify the farm that we have. So in a way, it's gone from um, growing crops just to survive yeah. to having access, you know, watermelons, sweet potatoes, tomatoes, packing them, sending them to Norfolk. Um, you know, my family would, would market hunt for a while. Um, so, you know, hunt pack, clubs? Hunt, yeah, so we'd, we had a, a, a hunt club that was just our family um, about a quarter mile north of the vineyards and in the marsh. It, it was destroyed in a hurricane in the 1930s, but um, that club was used for market gunning, so hunting birds to sell and send north to Norfolk and Baltimore. That process, that, that was... Um, deemed illegal you know like 100 plus years ago right uh, it was really detrimental to the, the population right but at the time they didn't know that so they were shooting um, just a lot of waterfowl <laughs> right. and packing them in barrels and salt and sending them them north and feathers i think were a big part of that as well yes yes somebody told me that and <laughs> i don't have any sort of record of where okay. they, they did anything like that but uh, they did not wait they waste not yeah. want not they, yeah. they, they good process point. <laughs> every part of the bird yeah real good point right there so and so the footprint um is everything on this side of the road what town are we in by the way we're in jarvisburg jarvisburg yeah. and is everything right here behind me behind the uh it's spread around now yeah. um my folks added some farmland up near um they call it bertha but it's it's really idlet before you get to barco yeah. um so some farmland up there where they have the mud park um, yeah dennis anderson's mud park is a like a lease sort of partnership with my folks okay um so my uncle will farm up there and then sometimes when the mud race is like really <laughs> really cranking he will just um harvest beans or corn to make room 
right. for parking. He's done that. Before. I think He's I've picked. heard of this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's uh, something that he's had to do. Just that, that's a multiple use of that property up there. And then um, we farm a lot sort of along the Grandy back road over toward the North River. Okay. Um, and then some of the land, though, is, is not um, not agriculturally suitable, but perfect for wildlife habitat, which is something that we're into. Okay. Maintaining a good bird population. Right. And so the footprint behind me, behind the uh, sanctuary here, uh, how many acres would that be roughly? Uh, it's about 100 acres of farming. Okay. 300 acres when you add in like some marsh. And it, it goes all the way to the Kurtuck Sound? It does. Gotcha. People often ask about, like, they like to talk about duck hunting. Sometimes they'll get into the island, Hughes Island. They'll get into um, sort of what it's like to sort of be in this area with development coming in. <laughs> I get that all the time. And, um, you know, because for a lot of folks, Curry Tuck is like the next frontier of development. You're right. Um, so if I was born in 1979, I spent I spent the 80s sort of in a sort of old school kind of like one of those John Mellencamp songs, you know, like where yeah. there was like a little place that would do snow cones and right. ice cream. And then there was an independent grocery store. There was really if you wanted to eat, there's one or two spots, no chains. Um, yep. It felt like sort of this sort of throwback type community yeah. and then they put the four lane in in, in like 85 or 86 um which I, had to be done because they were getting backups the old bridge at coin jock used to be a swing bridge oh, yeah. it wasn't an, it wasn't a flyover it wasn't an overpass bridge right um it was just an old school swing bridge and so you'd get one to two to three hour long backups yeah up to moyak because that was all two lane too you didn't get a four lane until you reached battlefield at 64. wow so uh, there was a time where if you wanted to go, I don't know, say you want to go to Bush Gardens, you were on a two-lane until you got to yeah. 64 Battlefield, which obviously would, is crazy. Yeah. You know, you go through Great Bridge on a two-lane. I mean, that, that all changed in the mid-'80s when they four-laned it out here, and it just kind of, like, ramped up the visitorship. So then we, you know, that's when things kind of change. And then the 90s were all about, like, build Kerala as fast as you can <laughs> yeah um and then the 2000s were rebuild town you know like take take town kdh and tear down a lot of the box salt boxes and turn them into rental homes right and it's, it's sort of like now like post uh covid we've just decided that that's all built out Kerala's built out and let's go to Kurita, you know so that right. to me is like the next sort of theme. Yeah. So I get asked about that kind of stuff yeah. a lot. Like I, you know, I'm a Marylander, native Marylander. I've been here 25 years, but I grew up and, and was raised in Maryland. And I remember going to Ocean City, Maryland. Now it's apples and oranges, Ocean City and the Outer Banks. But Ocean City, on the other side of the little bay was nothing, just absolutely nothing. And now you go there and there's strip malls and restaurants and I think hotels and stuff like that. And I just, I can't help but kind of compare. It's just a matter of time that, yeah. you know, somebody looks across the bridge. And, and I know people have looked over here and kind of tried, but nobody's had any success with it so far. But yeah. eventually somebody's going to make it stick, and they're going to build strip malls and uh, um, other housing and stuff like that. So anyway, there's that's not, just a theory. And there's not a lot of uh, 
There's not a lot of people selling right now, but as soon as they start to sell, yeah, it'll have like a domino effect. Um, but one thing about Curry Tuck is like, it's not that wide. It's a really small peninsula. <coughs> They'll find ways to build it to within an inch of its life. Right. I get that, but I just would hope that they would wait until like um, building technologies and public and private partnerships for planning have figured out a way to mitigate, you know, like um, impacts to, to the ecosystem. Yeah. And I, I hope if they can just wait 10, 10 to 20 more years, then it would really be nice because what's happened in the last 25 years is people will build um, five, 10 acre farmettes. And those are great yeah. for that individual landowner. It gives them space. But then what it's doing is it's like, you're not really letting you're not allowing for any sort of high density in a really small area right. where a lot of people could live. So if you cut up too many of them, then you're like sending people further and further away to find that nice density. You know, yeah. like I used to say, like, I can't believe why anybody would want high density houses. And I did the planning board for two terms. And during that time, it kind of changed my opinion, which is you got to have somewhere for people to live. Yeah. And they need to be able to live sort of compact and vertically within what you can handle you know right. elevation standard wise and that's just like they never really got around to it in dare county and it's too late now <laughs> for dare so yeah i sure hope they would imagine where to put that in curry tuck ahead of time yeah yeah and, and the problems in dare are probably going to dictate some future problems for curry tuck in yeah nobody opinion. in dare can just agree to let folks on an average salary yeah. live it's just almost like we, we need somewhere for these folks to live. Everybody shouts it, and then they, the same people just can't accept it anywhere close to them. And yep. so what a terrible cycle to be in yep. exactly. when you can't get help, and then you can't afford <laughs> – you can't let people live next to you because you don't want them in your backyard. Yep. And I don't know. I don't have a good answer. As somebody that sort of is in a family that, that has land, but we just haven't sold any. And I don't know if we ever would if we, if we had our choice. We would just yeah. – I'd rather sort of take what money we make here and pay property taxes yeah. than sell something to generate money. Right. Yeah. I don't need like, I don't have like a really high sort of standard of living. I, I can, I can coast along and yeah. um, I think I just grew up with people that were pretty frugal and yeah. there's a limit to what you can use and there's yeah. a limit to what you can take with you. So money, I don't know. I mean, money's important, but being able to have somewhere where like your kids can walk around yep. and have like a good open childhood among nature that's more important to me so yeah. I, I would hope to not sell it but i yep. know some people are and they can't they're gonna have to i get it yeah and yeah I, I agree with you 100 percent. so by the way is dues island part of your property dues island is so we have we own a a small stake in dues island by virtue of the fact that it's easement is through our farm right it to get to Dews Island, you have to cross our gotcha. farm. And so over the years, we've had like a, a share of it by, because of the fact that we you have to go through us to get there. And so it's had different owners over the years. Um, the current ownership is some folks out of Florida. Um, and a is, it still, is it still a hunt club? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. It's, um, it's one of the last ones that is sort of running – privately independently I mean, right. some of the you have some clubs that pine island that are affiliated you know with audubon or are part of sort of easements where 
there's a they're they're not going to hunt all the time over there. They're next to a lot of development, and yeah. they're trying to preserve the birds they have over there. Um, and so some of the you know Curry Tuck Club burned down and is gone. Some of the other clubs have been sold and they've become residences. You know, over on Knotts Island and in the back of Corova. Uh, so Dews Island continues to be solely for the purpose of hunting. Um, there's no private events. There's Nobody really goes over there other than to hunt. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it gets a lot of traffic from uh, people renting like boats and jet skis. So and <laughs> that's yeah. how I know about Deuce Island is I used to rent jet skis and duck and we did jet ski tours mm -hmm. and there really wasn't a whole lot to see on in Kurtuck Sound. So, oh, yeah. well, there's Deuce Island and sometimes there's horses over there. Let's just circle around Deuce Island. So that's the only yeah. way I know of it, honestly. Which, I mean, I think it's an awesome place. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's melting, you know. Is that right? Like the way a lot of islands in the Curry Tuck Sound are um, eroding, excuse me. <laughs> I, I, mean, I, I knew like, what you were talking about. I like to call it melting because I feel like people um, hear erosion and they just think, well, this is some guy's, like, land that's he's losing to water. So he's losing, like, tax value and boohoo you know whatever. Right, right, right. um but if you start to think about i mean when i think of stuff melting i realize it doesn't come back right you know, it becomes one with the what's around it so yeah. i talk to people about marsh marsh loss and erosion i just i say this land is is becoming liquid it's melting away you know and yeah. we're surrounded by water and we love water and it's part of our existence but if you enjoyed the use of land for some purpose and then it ceases to become land um, then that's a problem. And so, like, with Monkey Island, that, that place is gone. Um, is that in, right? In terms, of per, in terms of any sort of higher use for, for humans, it is not. It's a, it's a rookery now, and it's a snake bed <laughs> is what it is. Yeah. And I haven't been close to it in 30 years because yeah. there's why I go. You know, I mean, it's, you can yeah, look at can, the Can't get out and walk around, right? Oh, absolutely not. I don't know anybody that really goes around there anymore. Um, I think maybe some like Hadley Twitty will take a boat tour around I there. I think I heard that, yeah. But I don't, I seriously doubt that she's trying to get anybody close to where that is. Yeah. Um, I think I heard she wasn't allowed to get on that island for some reason. I oh, I don't think that, yeah, and I don't, I don't, I think that it's still privately owned, but I mean, um, the concept of a tour around it, I think is cool and it's fascinating. It's a good thing because if you want to see egrets, um, there's so many of them. Is that right? It's unbelievable. Um, it's just that the snakes are kind of, if they're like the snakes at Deuce Island, they can be aggressive. And so getting close when there might be thousands of moccasins as opposed to just <laughs> 10 or 15, yeah. I mean, it just strikes me as like kind <laughs> yeah. of foolish. Um, but like that, that's the fate of islands like Deuce Island, which were built up only by putting a little bit of fill on top of or around like the one little bit of high ground that's there. Every other part of it is just the, I don't know, hundreds, thousands of years of just sort of glacial silts accumulation, marsh grasses that are pretty fickle and need a certain mix of right. inner tidal range. They don't have that tidal range anymore. They right. become subtidal. I don't know what it is when when you're they mostly die wet. Or something They're or hypoxic. You know when the water comes in and uh, it's not from anybody putting around on boats or jet skis it's really not wake related it's just yeah. the inundation yeah. i have one acre little vineyard of muscadines 
which are that native grape. It's indigenous to North Carolina, and I planted them for um, you pick because I wanted people to be able to show up, and go pick a bucket, and yeah. come weigh them, and then visit. And it was like a fun sort of side hustle that would generate a little bit of goodwill among the community too right um, because the locals love muscadine grapes but we planted them in one of the lower spots of the farm which is 14 feet 13 feet elevation but it's two feet lower than the surrounding right land and so the rain that comes off the highway and the rain that moves backward from this other five acres runs toward it and so it's it's flooded for a few days each year the last five years and it's dying so the vineyard's dying it's, gotcha. it's 13 feet above sea level but because of the ground water yeah. it's uh i don't know my, my granddad grew tomatoes and sweet corn there for uh, 50 years i mean i don't think that it's it's not suitable for for anything anymore and so that's like indicative to me what's happening to, right. to you, the water table. Over time, you've seen yeah. the water table kind of change its profile. I get yeah, the water table is, is coming up, and so that's all part and parcel of the same issue. You know what's interesting? Um, I told you, you know, about my ventures out in Iowa, South Dakota, is irrigation is huge out there. I mean, it's mostly corn and soybean, but it's huge. Yeah. I see you do have some irrigation out back here, but I just don't see all, I don't see the irrigation here that yeah. I did in Iowa and South Dakota. Is, is there a reason for that? Um, the irrigation here is usually not needed. Because, because of the water? I'm sorry, I'm cutting Yeah, no, because of the, my uncle put that um, center pivot irrigation in yep. in the late 70s, early 80s. I'd have to ask him. Uh, my granddad was still farming a lot back then too. And I think it to them was sort of them trying to be more competitive and reach higher yields on this loam right. sand that we have and uh but for the most part lower curry tucks my uncle would disagree some years when he has good yields but it's typically a harder place to get top earning yields um so your bushels to acre mark in shawborough can sometimes double the yield here in jarvisburg because right. shawborough has um some silt some dark silt yep. mixed in with the loam and so there's more humus there's more tilth in the soils of shawborough and northern curry tuck and the yields they're just going to be higher yeah so okay down county farmers have had a a challenge in terms of yields they tend to see the best yields in years where there's just like weekly drenching rains okay all right that makes sense which those are not really as common in june and july as they were during my granddad's era and this is anecdotal i don't have yeah this in front of me but um if my granddad would would have said that, and then my uncle said it, I believe it. You right. know, that they used to have rains they could count on in June and July, right. and now we go into a drought cycle. At least in Lower Curry, we go into a bit of a drought cycle during June and July, almost every year. And then August is a is a roulette of weather. Right, because one hurricane could change everything. Yeah, I believe it. You know, when you, when you consider the Native Americans didn't use a writing system. It was all just knowledge handed down over generations. And they knew when the fish were going to show up. They knew when the birds yeah. were going to show up. They, they, they could predict a lot of this stuff without. So when, when you say that, you know, your, your family members had just passed down observations, I think that's pretty critical. And I think that's pretty important. And I'd say it's probably 
there's a lot of truth to it. There might not be hard numbers, but, yeah. but I'm sure there's some a lot of truth to it. It's crazy how they're going to be able to extrapolate so much data from the weather stations I track and log here on the farm. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a data guy in, in some respects. I like to collect it and I like to process it. So like whoever sort of farms next, if they do, would have a lot more to work with, but they have a lot more variation they'd be seeing. You know, I mean, I, our season begins with what people in the business call a bud break. When you first see primary buds open, they have a shroud, they're inside of a woolly sort of shroud, and then they open. Usually after about a week of temps that are gonna average 60, 55 to 60, when you when you average low and high for the week, um, they'll come out. Okay. And that's that used to be April 1st to 5th, maybe. And now it's March 15th, 20th. <laughs> and that's in 20 years. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, the, what they'll find is if they want to look at our data and the data I've been compiling, it's going to show like some rapid change. Yeah. That's crazy. So, your title is general manager, um, and you are basically a part of a big family that's been owning this uh, place for generations. Um, can you ex uh, describe, you know, kind of the, the general setup of what you got here with your parents and everything? Yes. Um, so the Wright family would, would typically take whatever they've been doing last and then someone would carry it forward. And yeah. so in the case of like my granddad and his, um, for, well, my granddad and his brother, um, farmed together they split some of the farm up um his brother keeping a lot of the land that's like what we call the whitcomb landing which is a huge tract of land south of fisher landing road before you get to colonial beach um and we still farm that just for its current owner uh, but my my grandfather he took sort of the farmland on this side and then um, my folks took ownership of an old cotton gin i want to say it's not old it's old now, it burnt down but in, in, in 2019, but at the time it was relatively new. The owner had lost it in the Great Depression and mm -hmm. so my family took ownership of it because it was adjacent to our, our farm. Okay. Um, it, wasn't our, it wasn't our cotton gin, but once we took it over, we did not even grow cotton, so it became, it became more of like a packing shed and a logistics center. And then my so, so your family never really operated it as a cotton gin? No, it was built as one because, it, this is my understanding, there was something of a idea that they were going to have cotton production in Curry Tuck. Um, but again, the soils being light, too light, I don't think that it ever came about and then the Great Depression really killed that off. Um, you know, cotton tends to be grown most capably on the other side of the Chilwan River. Oh, really? Going west is where the soils I think dictate that cotton is grown. So like for us, we didn't have any real connection to, we didn't grow it. So then when they took over the, the gin, I think they just kind of stripped it and then operated it as a way to process all their vegetables and stuff they were growing. Mm -hmm. And so my granddad would sell produce out of it. And then the uh, folks that owned Dews Island, the majority owners were the Chatham family from Elkin. And they were affiliated with the Haynes as well, who owned Fruit of the Loom. Oh, really? And so the big textile families and their clients were always here hunting. And my oh, granddad okay. was the caretaker. So 
And the textile families were coming from central North Carolina, where a lot of the textile uh, industries were? Yeah, Winston-Salem yep. um, and Elkin, and they were coming out here and duck hunting, because it was, duck hunting was famous here for years, but um, was really brought about by Mr. Knapp, um, who right. had, was part of a family that had met life, and also uh, helped found Ducks Unlimited. I mean, right. a lot of that has its origin in Curry Tuck. Wow, okay. So these people came to Curry Tuck to duck hunt. They came to Dews Island specifically to duck hunt. And in doing so, my granddad had formed some relationships where I guess he was just taking some, some of their linens, textiles, and whatnot, and just selling them along with some crafts my grandmother made. My grandmother yeah. um, was from near Fair Bluff, North Carolina, like in tobacco country down okay. near the South Carolina line. She moved up here to teach at the the only school in Currituck really at the time was back where Griggs Elementary is now okay. and it was in a kind of back in that area is that, right? that was the school she came to teach and met my grandfather and she she stuck around and so she brought some like crafting traditions from like sort of low country you know Columbus Robeson County near the South Carolina line she was okay. in crafts they would have textiles and whatever produce they were growing and they just would sell it under the lean-to that was in the front of the yeah. cotton gin and that was back when it was would have not maybe even been paved initially but became <laughs> paved wow um that's the origin of the cotton gin but gotcha. he kept forming my, my grandfather formed the whole time and then as my uncle and dad left college they both went to nc state they both uh, i think my dad liked farming and my uncle pursued teaching because I think that he had maybe resisted farming at first yeah um, and he'd done he'd gone to work on a ranch in Australia he'd done a few other things my uncle sort of branched out but ended up farming I think it was sort of his calling right. and then my dad it just went to school you know with farming and ag agronomy in mind um, but you know also I think had a sort of business interest that would have taken him adrift from farming right right he has a corn allergy too i think that's like they <laughs> told me they told me like it, sometime in the 70s it became really apparent that he was having like he had like some sort of a grain like allergy so it's like so it was just keeping him just completely congested and right. he's just like having to wear a mask all the time while you work around the grain bins it's not right. fun um so i think practically they were both farming for a while and then it became apparent that there's a need to like utilize the building for something outside of agriculture so hospitality and retail and so the timing of that was probably pretty good i'd say so because <laughs> the 80s were the late 70s were early 80s were the time when i think you began to take the outer banks from being just fishermen like you'd see like these sort of guys in a truck just surf fishing you're right. fishing and then that would be it that's what i hear this that's what people say oh in the 70s you just you'd maybe you go surf fishing or camping go to hatteras yeah and then they started to develop just enough hotels and just enough restaurants right maybe a putt putt course here and there to like bring a family in i think that was a 80s thing yeah that makes sense and with that that opened it up yep um, and so you're, you're almost it sounds like you, you, the family members are kind of stewards of the farm and it just yeah. evolves, you know, as generations are added. And uh, um, it sounds like everybody's on the same page. Like, we're, we're not going to 
cash out on this thing and, and go live in Florida. We're just going to keep doing what we're doing. Is that is that pretty accurate? That's what I think. That's what I hope. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's hard to say because I mean, not you can't go on forever doing this, but I wouldn't want it to stop with me. Right. I mean, I imagine at some point it'll stop, but there's no reason why. Like I was just in Ocracoke. We delivered wine and stayed overnight and to visit the Springer's Point, that yeah. trail. Yeah. I mean, that place could have, that could have been developed. One of the most premium places to yeah. have a house. Right. I can't imagine a place with like the elevation and the access to deep water. I mean, that could have been sold uh, 10 times. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that it didn't meant that somebody resisted yeah. the urge, you know? Yeah. And I, it, that sounds, that's a good word. I think they just, they just resisted the urge to cash in and just hang on to their, their heritage, so to speak. So I respect that. I don't know. I, I like, I can't, uh, <laughs> I think of all the things like, for example, you know, like I, if I'd like see like a piece of junk food, like I'm going for it, you know, it's like a Dr. Pepper, I'm drinking it, you know, like I have very little impulse control when it comes <laughs> to like my diet. But I do feel like if somebody came up and said, here's like a million dollars for this piece of land. I just don't see. Yeah. And that, that seems crazy. Cause you think about like how many Dr. Peppers can you buy with like a million dollars? You have an endless supply of Dr. Pepper, but the fact remains like the feeling of knowing, like there's been a, a lot of people already that have thought you could sell this for like a hundred years and probably it's just, it's land, but it's just more than that. Yeah. It's the idea that I could just walk out here one night and just sit there and, watch you know one of these like planes take off or one of these sort of like space shuttles and see that right and i've got no light anywhere all the lights are off and i've got my own little piece of yep. history you know people have been here watching god knows comets and things pass over for years and like once you sell that i don't know yet it just starts with little bits of here and there it might be light pollution from yeah some sort of mixed retail commercial development on a neighbor's land yeah. and like you can't really change that but but you don't necessarily want to just say well they already sold so i guess i need to as well right you kind of almost have to say well not only do i not need it now i need to gird myself and everybody around me to say just because it happened here doesn't mean it's got to keep going yeah you know, i mean they're developing from grandy slowly moyak i get oh that gosh, you know yeah. like moyak is out of the gate that's yeah that's done but i mean when they build say a water park you know i'm able to say that's fine i'm not you know upset that they built a water park i, I went i went to the water park within like a few weeks of them being <laughs> open i just said yeah. i can't hold out any longer it's a water park it's hot yeah. you know so i went and i and i had a great time i guess there's there's a duality there where yeah. i mean i'm not going to tell people they can't do something with their land but yeah i'm pretty firm in my own belief that i don't need that for this and so eventually i, I would i wish that jarvisburg could have like some trails that would connect the north river which is you turn at the fisher landing road it goes right back to the north river it's wonderful back there it's is a nice it? little view of camden the peninsula of camden county and then the empties the icw's out there and yep. then you could connect it and there's our elementary school over there where some of my kids go and then you know you come up here the BJ's, get, you know, barbecue, then there's us. You got eventually the Weep and Radish will reopen. It's a nice little, it's two little farm stands. It's a nice little spot, yeah. you know. It doesn't really need, like, a, a lot of 
commercial activity. If Grandy wants to keep doing that, then if you left little like green sort of corridors right. between them, just if not for humans and for animals, they need some green space. Yeah. I mean, they need to be able to move and get about. You can't just cut off all their their access. So I think long term, yeah, it'll develop uh, heavily. But my thoughts would be that we could, if anything, develop some kind of a park here. Yeah, something that had more civic good right whenever whenever i go to a park i think like well here's a place where somebody either refused to sell or opted to take way less money than the market would dictate right, right. parks don't tend to get built on somebody getting super paid they tend to involve somebody maybe doing a tax break or finding some sort of swap and yeah that lady whose name escapes me right now but she owned all that real estate where town of kill devil hills uh the high school, the middle school, the elementary school, and I think maybe even Run Hill. I mean, yeah. apparently she owned all that stuff, and she gave it away for a nickel, you know. Yeah. And yeah, I'm glad Cla she Saint did Claire. because it, it, it's yeah. turned into a nice, perfect little place. Everything is right there. Town Hall, the, mm -hmm. the police station, everything's right there where you need it. And if you didn't have that, you would be impossible to cobble it together. Right, exactly. You'd be spread out all over the place, and it wouldn't work as well. I get it. Well, one day that'll that'll come to Curry Tuck, and I don't know if they need to. I guess if everybody else wants to cash out, that's <laughs> that's fine. I just I've had more than enough talks with my dad and uncle where they said, you know, despite whatever appearances of having these businesses and however it looks, they conduct themselves in a really frugal manner. Yeah. And I grew up around that. Yeah. You know, I grew up in with some caretakers and some family friends that, you know, that, um, I mean, they, they would have like a, they drink out of a well. I mean, they, they, they would eat out of their own garden, you know, right. raise their own, um, their own poultry. I mean, the, these are people that I grew up around and in the care of. And so some of that, it's like, I, I kind of get, you know, I get it. Yeah, I get it. They were living, um, and they were, they were older folks you know, when I was real little, but, to see some of the people that had lived like kind of old Outer Banks lifestyles, you know, wow. where there wasn't um, central plumbing, wow. where, where, you know, like that that kind of thing. I don't necessarily want to carry all those practices myself, and, and I'm not going to, but to have grown up around that where people are like, well, we're not buying that because I preserved those last year. You know, we don't go to the store for beans. They're right yeah. here, they're, they're ours. I just that's a that's kind of a lost concept and yeah. i can't adopt all that because i'm super busy with my business and yeah. kids and career but just to remember that like if you can live that way then you can really live like in a smaller footprint and yeah and be happy that's uh long term i hope that helps carry over toward my kids too and, right and maybe they don't want to sell anything either they might yeah. just want to yeah. maybe they can put a horse farm up here because you can't farm forever like in the way that my uncle does and my granddad did, if it means more sort of orchards or maybe we talk about like sustainable energy options, right. you know, wind, not necessarily wind energy, but like solar energy, stuff like that. We can mix agriculture and sort of alternative power generation, things right. like that. It just keeps, keeps it from being developed. Right. My, my wife grew up on a dairy farm in Vermont 
and uh, her parents are Dutch. My, my dad is Dutch, or was Dutch, he's passed away. And um, there's a big joke that the Dutch are super cheap. <laughs> you know? And so, you know, my, my wife growing up with two Dutch parents on a farm, it's like, yeah, she's, she's pretty cheap. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I get the frugality of it. You know, you just kind of, you, yeah. you just make it work. And, and if you don't need it, you don't get it. And that carries through now? I mean, oh, y'all big, still? For the most part. I mean, it's funny. We both have our, you know, little, for me, anything related to sports, I got to throw money at it, you know. Yeah. And for her, it's got to be shoes and, you know, the house she lives in kind of thing. Right. But uh, other than that, she's she's a miser, you know. It's, it's very funny. Well, it's interesting that, I mean, people will say you, you can't take it with you. Um, you know, money isn't everything. And they're right because, like, there, there's a limit to how much you can accumulate, but if you try to have like a, a, a positive life experience without money, you know, it's not going to go well. Like, I mean, people say like, money isn't everything. Well, money is like really what you need to say. In the case of my kids, like I want them to be sure that they have like good experiences outside of school, you know. So right. I want to keep one kid uh, with horses. Yeah, it's terribly expensive, <laughs> right. you know. And then the other one, she wants to do every sport imaginable. So right. it goes from lacrosse to jujitsu to swim, um, and so a lot of that's more time than it is money. But right. in order to generate the time to take them everywhere, right. I have to work harder and spend more money to have somebody <laughs> allocated to do my job. Yeah. So like, yeah, whatever it takes in order to just make my kids happy, I'm I'm cool with spending that amount of money. But anything else. <laughs> exactly. I, I, I follow you. Yeah. So you, the family decides to grow a, a vineyard. Um, did you have to call somebody up? Did you have to go to school? Did you have to figure it out? Yeah, so I'd, um, I'd come back from Chapel Hill, and then I did not have like great uh, job prospects. Just I did not do. I, I think I did pretty well here, you know, going to public schools here. And then when I got there, this, my study habits weren't the best. I probably decided to like, you know, maybe sample the, the nightlife. Sure. And, uh, so anyway, I got out of Chapel Hill with a degree, but um, nobody was like begging me to come to New York or right. DC or Atlanta to do um, any banking, you know, or, or like any finance stuff. So I came home and just figured I would sort of wait a year. I graduated right after September 11th, so I'd intern um, with an investment bank, um, but with an investment firm, but didn't, there's no job prospects there. I mean, after September 11th, there's, there's not only a hiring freeze at most of the firms, but there's wow. just a general feeling that they were not going to be hiring for that class in, in large part, because they were just, they needed to see what the industry was going right. to do. So it was sort of a holding period, like a holding pattern. I moved home. Um, and then while I was here, I did not have the idea for a vineyard. My uncle and dad had like been, I don't know if they were cruising up to Knott's Island for like some decoys. They'll yeah. buy, they'll buy decoys. Okay. Um, and they were up there and noticed that they'd gone from having just the Martin farm, which is an old peach orchard and vineyard that was planted in the mid eighties. They've been, they're the oldest vineyard in that's European style vineyard in northeast north carolina by a wide margin so there'd been a second one planted so like in the course of just 
a few months in like 1999 or 2000, they'd gone from having like one vineyard that had four or five acres of Chardonnay and Cabernet, and it was a bit of an oddity. It's kind of a curiosity that this farmer, David Martin, was planting European vines out here. This new, uh, he's a retired plastic surgeon from Virginia Beach, he had added something like 10 to 12 acres in one year. So he tripled like the size of the vineyards on Knott's Island. Hmm. In, in one year and my folks had noticed they'd stop by and they're like you know just think about that you know because i'd been at chapel hill and i had um drank wine at chapel like a lot <laughs> um, cause it, cause you it, were practically an expert yeah, yeah unc they don't they don't drink i mean there's a there's a subset of people at unc that are that stereotype that wear bow ties preppy, to football games yeah. and um do wine and cheese like yeah. tailgating? Yeah, that's that's a real thing. That it's was a, that was UVA. Joke. We lived in Charlottesville. That was there was a UVA crowd like that. Oh yeah, and I mean UVA, I think is probably dialed up even more than Carolina in that regard. Right. But so anyway, I actually joined in among a group like that where we would drink like good wine on the weekends, what we thought was good. And you spend twenty twenty five dollars on a bottle of wine. This is in the nineties. I mean that was. Um, that would get you pretty far. And so like, I appreciated wine by the time I came home and I, without really thinking about it, I just went over to Knott's Island at, because my folks had put that concept in my mind and met with the Moonrise Bay, it's the name of the second vineyard. Mm -hmm. And then I sort of followed back up with the Martins from the original Martin Farm. And uh, between the two of them over the next few years, they, they were giving me all the sort of intel I needed to know how to plant a vineyard. And were your parents, were they just trying to open up a door to kind of, well, you know what, if you want to stick around and farm with us, awesome. Was that kind of a, the long-term plan? I think they thought it was just like a, so for example, for a time, my, my uncle grew cotton. And this was when the market price for cotton was strong enough that we felt like it could be sustained and I don't recall if it had something to do with NAFTA or the way the global trade controls on cotton were running or if there was a problem in, in the Middle East and Asia, but cotton was just the thing to grow. And so we had cotton like next to the cotton gin. And yeah. it was just the most curious thing that people wanted to pull over. They didn't know yeah. what it was. They just wanted to walk in it. They would get tore up walking through it. And um, <laughs> right. they, it was like a curiosity. Yeah. And I think that my folks said, well, you know what? We had to take the cotton out because they had issues with like a blight and weevils and it was bad so they got rid of everything before the gear all the equipment lost all its value they needed something i think like what's this sort of cool <laughs> thing that's next to the cotton gin that looks interesting right. and that's what we planted we did like a half acre on one side and a whole acre on the other side and we were just going to send the grapes up to the moonrise bay facility and have them make it and we did that until 2008 when their owner um, had some health issues and needed to sell. And they sold to somebody that was going to develop it. They weren't going to continue it as a vineyard. Gotcha. Knott's Island is pretty far off the beaten path, and it's close to Virginia Beach. And, I mean, pretty one of these days people are just going to see Knott's Island as, like, this really cool rural extension of Virginia Beach, but it is they're not going to let that go anytime soon. Knott's Island is its own independent sort of republic of yeah. Currituck and 
you, you couldn't get enough people over there to support that winery and they had to they had to hang it up when they did we had to come into this this building and we had to open this up in 2009 and you acquired the equipment to uh, do all the fermentation all the uh, um, bottling and stuff yourself yeah well we started piecemeal we bought a lot of the stuff from moonrise bay when they went out right but that was some smaller type equipment and for a few years we expanded pretty rapidly and then um well, I say for a few years, my like a year and a half, we, we ramped up and then we hit the recession in 09. Right. Um, and then we dialed back a little bit and then things started to sort of cut loose again and then we increased production. And then between 2015 and like 2020, we've made more of a focus on, we'd like to make quality and, and maybe dial back how much we make. So instead gotcha. of just fighting to make a, $15 bottle of wine just and, and be on the shelf with these other wines that are made with such cost-cutting precision we can't do that right so um, how, just out of curiosity how long does it take for a vineyard to be mature enough to produce enough grapes uh, three years minimum so plant and are you just planting little cuttings or saplings and they just take about three years to get up to maturity yeah it's a it's a it's bare root, dormant bare rooted vines. So the rootstock is um, typically American in origin, and then it's grafted. The European vine is grafted onto the American rootstock, and that present uh, prevents these root-borne diseases that are endemic to the U.S. Gotcha. And do you have to go to a special uh, supplier to get these uh, European vines? So they they raise the the stock in places like New York, California, Washington State, you buy them from the nursery and you just buy them in the rootstock and scion combination that you want. So in our case, we like these rootstocks that um, tolerate sand, they tolerate a little bit of salt in the water. Yeah. Um, they are nematode resistant. So it, it limits us to like a, a few different rootstocks. Okay. Um, and then I get the the vine that I want on top, you know, so like that barrel is Cabernet Franc, it's CF, and this one's S1, oh, right. Syrah. So I'll ask for Syrah and I'll ask for the particular clone number. So with Syrah, you, it's probably like 100 different clones that you could choose from wow. around the world. Um, and we'll go with the ones that now kind of know what clones work. I've had some clones that didn't work. And when you say work or don't work, you're talking about their survival rate on the vine or being a vine. Yeah, like the vines are, um, the vines are not gonna die unless they get a bite from a bug that's carrying this. There's a there's a bacterium that's spread by leaf hoppers. It's really bad, called Pierce's disease. That's a terminal vine disease okay. for European vines in warm climates. They can get crown gall from the from from the dirt, you know, having some bacteria in it. But from those parts, the vines, they could probably live like. 25 to 50 years in this climate before they would tap out from old age is that right but we're finding that they tend to live like 10 to 15 just because there's a right? little bit there's always something that takes them down whether it's that vine disease uh with the trunk disease or whether it's the pierce's disease that sort of viral issue that spread now that now that that just leads me off to mother vineyard over on manio island that thing's been around for hundreds of years yeah 
Has that thing just been able to adapt to everything that it's, it's native. come up against? It's muscadon. muscadon. Yeah. You can't really can't kill, kill them. <laughs> uh, you can kill them with, with uh, hypoxia, like what we have, where oh, the water takes right. over the root system. Right. But, um, yeah, I feel like that, that there was a utility crew that's put dicamba I, on I heard that, yeah. Or paraquat or something. Got it. They accidentally poisoned it and almost killed the whole thing. Jeez. And it will never be the same. The vine won't. Is that right? Um, because whenever we we get drift on our vines, they they really mess them up. They change. When you the, say dr drift from other somebody using uh, some kind of a pesticide on a local farm. Yeah. yeah. And the local farmers, our neighbors, they really never, it never that never seems to be the problem because they're not they're not spraying the stuff that gets us. It can sometimes be, um, you just never know who's spraying what, whether it's yeah. some sort of road crew or if it is drifting in from like a higher elevation sometimes you get aerial spraying i mean we've we communicate enough with the other growers around that we all are comfortable with each other that's cool but it's hard to know sometimes you know you just never know what what where this is coming from you get individual vines seem to have some toxicity right. but they're really they're like little people they are all different yeah and so, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm kind of digressing a little bit, but Mother Vineyard, because of, it's a vine that's just hundreds of years old, do you think it's still producing good grapes? I mean, is it, does it matter how old that vine is? I don't think, I think they can produce grapes at almost any age, but they're going to have a very small crop. As, so, they, as they age? As they age, yes. So my house that I moved into in 2015, the house is from 1860 old farmhouse and it has a small muscadine vine behind it that appears to have been planted in 1920 is our best guess wow um and it had not been pruned for several years before we moved in wow. so i pruned it back um, and when you have a vine of that age you have to prune it basically you have to almost kill it and then leave little nodes where it can survive so basically take it back to nubs and then leave little escape hatches where some shoots can come out in case you need to saw that big cuts back the year after. Yeah. So basically the, the big cuts looked almost dead. Um, but then the little escape hatches, like the release, release valves, sent some shoots out. Interesting. Um, and those shoots were dormant for two years. And then last year they started bearing fruit, huh. um, but not a whole lot. Yeah, I mean that vine <laughs> is not that vine is not paying its way. You know, yeah. if I was looking for fruit, right? And a lot of our vines here they don't really pay their way, so we start to cut them out after about fifteen years. Is that right? If they take me like five to ten minutes just to prune in the winter, and then we put fifteen to twenty manual passes on it with our labor, and then it only gives us like three clusters i'm probably gonna i'm probably gonna drop pull that vine out with the tractor right um, most most of the plants should be giving me like 20 clusters um, and when they they give me half of that i can sort of look aside if the quality if the chemistry is good but mm -hmm. if it's like three four clusters in that plant we've spent too much right for too little so you've obviously done the homework um you know what, what was the learning curve i mean and and did you and did you lean on your your dad and uncle at all just in regular you know basic farming um, knowledge? I think that for for us, the farming that we've done this was not 
preparing any of us for okay. this. Yeah, so right. I did. I got a certificate from Cal Davis, um, and it took about three years, and I did some online. I did mostly online, but I would go in person to COA and do lab work. And so when I finished that certificate, that was helpful, but it wasn't practically as good as it could be. For Say I could go to somewhere like um, Virginia Tech, Cornell, um, there's great schools like Surrey, which is in Dobson. It's like a junior college, but they have a dedicated wine program. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so our winemaker went there, and um, that's where I would tell anybody to go because you're going to learn with people that are growing here. I have a certificate from a place where people go when you want to make wine in ideal situations. So if you went to Cal Davis, then you would probably try to work like in the Northern Hemisphere, you could work in Napa or Bordeaux or Burgundy, and then you could go down to like New Zealand or Chile right. or Australia in the winter and work serious, prestigious wineries. Um, whereas if you go somewhere that's like a regional school, then they're going to teach you. So the regional are, the Yeah, land. which yeah. is to say things don't go right hardly ever <laughs> um, growing grapes here. And then when it goes that way for the want for the grapes, then the winemakers in turn inherit these sort of odd batches of fruit. When I say odd, I mean like the pH does not match the, the titratable acidity. They're supposed to like move um, in curves, to, not together, but inversely in curves. Right. And that's the way the textbook says, the one that everybody gets at Davis. Yeah. But then say if you went to like a smaller college where the professor has been growing grapes for 30 years there in the east, they would say, yeah, well, that's not how it works. Actually, the pH just drops out for no reason, and then the acid stays way up here, and then you can't, and it tastes terrible when you eat the grapes, and you worry if you can make wine with it, and then he says, well, this is how you, but this is how you fix it. You know, yeah. you, you find these other grapes from another grower that are lower pH, but lower acid. Right? Okay. You blend together, or maybe you need to um, add some of these sort of natural sort of additives and then you let them ferment and then settle out and then you rack the wine naturally with the appropriate flavor and you'd never learn that at one of yeah. the bigger sort of like that Fresno State or Washington State I don't think they teach you that because right. they're growing fruit in nearly ideal conditions right when I watch and I don't watch a ton of cooking shows but when I watch cooking shows all I, I look at these people and I just say to myself they're chemists, you know, they're combining bitter flavors with sweet flavors and acidity with what, you know, whatever mild flavors. And now I'm listening to you and it's, it's the same thing. You're, you're a chemist and you're just balancing things out to get certain flavors. And, uh, it's interesting that, and now, now when you pop a grape in your mouth or you're like, okay, I can, I can kind of predict where this is going. Are you doing that? Yeah. Well, when we taste the I look at the grapes mostly to see what the seeds look like because the seeds are the indicator of the ripeness of the grape. Okay. So if the seeds are green, then they're not ready. And they can taste pretty good, but the seeds and then the texture of the skin are really the indicators of the quality. Um, now if the skin is sort of falling apart, you know, and then the, the berry itself is very juicy, but the seed is green um, we are not going to be able to wait any longer so we're going to have to pick that 
because gotcha. the skins are gonna slip and then it's gonna rot. Right. Well, at that point, we're, our <laughs> thoughts are, well, how do we get these seeds away from this, in this ferment, in this tank filled with all these mashed up grapes? I want, the seeds are the problem. Yeah. Because they'll make them bitter and astringent. Okay. So there's methods by which you naturally, like, ferment your way up and then pull seeds out of the bottom through other valves. You can separate them on a screen. Those are all like expensive and sort of labor intensive processes, but they'll help you make the wine you need to make. Right. But yeah, like in California, the, the skin would be firm, the berry would have high sugar and the seed would be lightly brown. And then you pick it and then go home and the wine would be like $500 a bottle. <laughs> but that's, we just don't ever get that. I'd say like twice in, it's my 21st vintage coming up maybe. I'd say twice in 21 years we've had the kind of vintage where the grapes look like what I've seen Perfect in grapes. Chile or, or Australia or when I've traveled. Right. They just don't, it just, it, it is what it is. I mean, it's, uh, the climate gives you, the farm gives you, the climate gives you, everything gives you the product and then you make the wine with it. You will not beat nature. Right. So. Uh, you could also just grow muscadine grapes and then not have a care in the world and, and make wine. It's just um, for us, like for me, the the muscadine wines they are they taste the same every year. They they Is that right? they almost always have the same exact flavor. Um, you know pretty much exactly when you're going to pick them. Um, maybe it's. Maybe they're just not as challenging, and the risk and reward ratio is really skewed with the European grapes that we grow, but I don't know. I sometimes wonder exactly why, you know, we persist with it, <laughs> but it's, I'm, I'm 43, so I'm kind of in it now. Right. And like in terms of somebody might, somebody who was 80 would say, well, you have so much time to do something else, um, but in the... But in my mind, I feel like I got more time now to fine tune this and change it. I've got right. way more, I've got a lot more time to sort of adapt and, and make a new sort of path. Like we've changed our whole sort of setup by three to five times over the last twenty years. The way we do things, right? Um, and but but I'm I don't think I could have a real job. Yeah, like a traditional job at this point well it seems like you enjoy the adaptation process i mean if, if you wanted to do the same thing every day you'd, you'd probably be out of the business by now but um, yes um sounds like you've adapted and, and continue to learn um you know i i, I get it and uh, and my job as a, as a water sports owner was similar i, I never knew what i was going to do from day to day i had a good idea but i knew anything would fall out of the sky and i'd have to catch it and, and run with it so yeah, you had to I, be I totally flexible you totally do you know, which, by the way, it made me, I think, makes me a better coach. It has made me a better coach over the years because you're going to be in a situation and things aren't going to go your way. You know, you got to be ready to adapt uh, with what's going on around you. I could not, I could not coach. <laughs> I can't. As I've gotten older, I can't watch Carolina basketball anymore. <laughs> I used to be able to watch any and all games. I could sit through them and just sort of, whatever anxiety I had, my, my calls, like my my issues with the coaching, I could just sort of 
chew my way through it, and then at the end of the game, I'd accept what happened. But <laughs> something happened in the last like ten years or so. I don't know. I'm just like I can't handle it. <laughs> and Roy, you know, he wouldn't. He just he was an amazing coach. But I'd sit there and I'd be like, "What are you doing?" And then I'm sitting there thinking, "What am I doing? Asking you what you're doing? I'm in a on a couch in Curry Club. You know, what I mean, right. I have no place telling you what to do. Right. But in my mind, I'm sitting there thinking, "Gosh, you know, you could have done things so differently." That's why I think that coaching is like a, one of those like totally underappreciated sort of a little jobs. bit. Uh, <laughs> a little bit. Well, I mean, at the pay, at the at the pay scale and level at which most coaches are. Yeah. You know, I think that is wildly overpaid for some professions oh for some professions absolutely <laughs> yeah but i think it's the folks that are coaching on like the high school level like i mean they're not getting paid enough. i, I don't i don't know how they survive i mean they're they're at school at seven forty-five, and they get off the field around five thirty or 6 and i don't know how they survive i don't know they have, have i don't know how they have time to do anything else you know so. I watch. We've been watching Friday Night Lights, my wife and I, because we just run out of stuff to watch, and we seem to have been able to agree on it. And I realize that's not at all what it's like, sort of coaching any sports around here. Right. But it's kind of interesting to see, you know, the way that people try to like balance being an educator with being a role model and being a coach at the same time, and how, at least when I was growing up, still that seemed to be all the coaches had to teach too. Nobody was really just like, oh, I'm just the coach here. Right. They were your math teacher too, yeah. you know, and they were like out there putting people on the bus, and they might be breaking up a fight. And yeah. I was thinking, gosh, that <laughs> and seems like a and they're correcting thing. papers, and yeah. and like if you're me, you're breaking down film and entering stats, and yeah, yeah it's uh, you know everybody just keeps wanting more and more. Um, so how do you see the business evolving from here? I thought sh that changes. <laughs> every few weeks um it well from the standpoint of the wine business i believe that the wine business has some headwinds because of people's personal decisions and lifestyle decisions and their attitudes toward health demographic spending you know like i don't see it being like a booming era for wine and it hasn't been for probably a decade it's been flat for wineries like us because the big businesses can rotate to oh let's make uh, cheap sparkling wine because people want Moscato so they'll just shift they'll right. close up certain plants they'll refit other places and make a pile of this stuff and make make all the money and then it's like so we can put wine into seltzers and we can repackage our winery as like a wine seltzer plant so they can be they're really nimble and they're agile but right. places like us we have vines that we put in you know 10 years ago that are barely just paying for themselves already and i need 10 more years out of them before they really make it so like seeing what's happening now where people you know they're not drinking as quite as much wine and that's okay because i mean wine technically is like not something that you should be just filling yourself with all the time right. and that's that's just the fact that's the facts and so we want people to enjoy it and we want it to be like part of their table and their family and their culture yep. at when they gather. Right. Um, but I don't necessarily need people to pile up cases of wine, you know, and go like just drinking a bunch of wine by themselves. Right. I mean, I don't need that either. Yeah. And so like there was a, there was a phase where people were like p pounding wine after COVID, but it was like, <laughs> but it was cheaper wine. 
And it wasn't right. necessarily, they weren't coming out here right. and enjoying like being in Curry Tuck and get, going to the farmer's market, and maybe getting some, some barbecue or looking for antiques and doing like this sort of fun like Curry Tuck day. They weren't right. doing that. They were just buying wine and staying home. And we weren't compatible with that. And, right. and I hope they come back around to experience-based tourism and yeah. I hope we continue to grow like our local partnerships with um, with locals here as well as local businesses and nonprofits. And I hope that if that synergy continues, we can go like 20, 25 more years probably. Yeah. Um, that's the idea. And so at that it, point, I don't know, there might be so much housing around <laughs> here that we yeah. have to do less farming because the footprint of our, of our ag operations might impact impinge or be might be infringed upon by development right. and right. Um, we already you know, we try to keep birds out we net our vines we have propane cannons that fire like a is sounds right? like a cannon and that is a lot for the neighbors yeah and that's a I mean I'm, I'm not going to say that like we're going to do away with that completely but finding a way to keep birds from eating our crops it's kind of important while scaring them while not um, affecting the quality of life of yeah. our growing community yeah. is a challenge. And that's not a 20-year challenge. That's a next-year challenge. Right. Well, it sounds like you've kind of settled into a nice a niche, a niche you're comfortable with, that, that small vineyard farm mm -hmm. and, uh, and serving mostly the local people, uh, tourism, all that stuff. So it, it, sounds like, it sounds like you're pretty content with where things are right now and Kind of see where things go as 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 needed. Yeah, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to perfect anything anymore. I think I've I've figured out that um, we aren't gonna. There's gonna be some folks around here that will never come over here and try the wine. It's like I don't know if it's just kryptonite, like yeah. stopping once they've left the beach. And, you know, they just got to get to Target. Yeah. Or they got to go to the airport and they got nothing else to do, but like they can't stop. I'm, I'm never going to get those people to stop. And yeah. then I got some folks that have had a couple bad North Carolina wines in the past. Possibly they were too sweet. Possibly they were mishandled. Possibly they just were served like in the sort of inappropriate setting where they weren't matched with the right. food. And so therefore, if we're going to pay for the sins of whatever <laughs> wine, bad wine experience they had, I mean, I hear from countless regional wineries that are like, yeah, somebody came up to you know Maryland and they had some like blueberry spritzer and they hated it and they assumed that all Maryland wine was like a blueberry spritzer. Right. And there you go. And that's um, that's your customer that you have to like fight to get them back. I used to do a lot of that. Like, please come. I promise you it's good. And yeah. then I was like, you know what? Like, it is good. It's the best that we can make with all the sort of resources we have and the years we put into it, we're comfortable with it. It's a good wine. They've, they've won best wine in the state. Like, George, we, we're like two out of five years? Yeah. Yeah, so we've won best red wine in the state like two out of five nice. years. I mean, that's, we really have tried. <laughs> I mean, and, yeah. and there's, there's medals and things, and some folks are not going to, they just don't care. Yeah. And, and I get it because wine from curry tuck is something that a lot of people i just they they can't wrap their minds around is that it. right yeah yeah <laughs> but i mean it, well, as soon as they've had a glass of wine they say oh that's that's really nice and it's even better if they have it with friends it's even better if they have it here with friends and we can talk to them about it yeah and explain it um 
but for a lot of people, they are here all the time. They love it. They're part of our wine club. They're really loyal. And they're almost like part of our family. And so nurturing that is probably what we're best at. Nice. And I don't think for quality-wise, I mean, we'd love to make the best wines we can, but when we, say, send it into Raleigh and it wins the Wine Growers Cup, we're really happy about that. But we, we don't necessarily sit around waiting to pick the grapes, hoping that they're tasting just right so that we think that they could win some award. When, when like this fall, we didn't have hurricanes, we were able to wait and wait. We just almost ready, no, wait another week, almost ready. And there's some really cool wines in the barrel from this year. They just might have what it takes to be some of the best wines in the state. Nice. But I mean, ultimately they were the best wines that we could make here in this year. And, and I don't know how they'll stack up, but right. we gave it our best shot. Yeah, in the end you take, like you said, you said it earlier, you take what you got, <laughs> Yeah. you know, environmentally and um, whatever else. And, and Like go, I don't know if I we're leaving it. it all on the field, as you would say. I mean, there's some there's some years where I think like I didn't leave it all on the field. You know, like I took a couple of days off in July and I should have been here taking those leaves from under that canopy so that the wind could blow through and when it rained five inches they wouldn't get that rot, you know. Right. But I bet every year I have some regret over something where I said, I shouldn't I should have just stayed here that day I should have brought this crew in I should have bought this machine to do this thing I, you know yeah I, I think if, if you're excelling at anything you're always rehashing things in your mind because you're always looking to you know get better learn make improvements if you're not <laughs> you're just destined to do the same thing over and over again right yeah. does um do you still have is there still a shuttle that comes from duck to come out here yeah it's kitty out kites runs it Right. That's uh, pretty cool. I must say, when I heard that, I, I thought that was genius. You know? Yeah, it's called the Vineyard Voyage. And the captain, uh, Captain Brian, he's got uh, Jones Brothers. And it's, it's pretty slick. I mean, yep. it is. Uh, it's, like probably, a, it's probably an inspected boat because he's oh, yeah. got. It's got, all, it's got all the seats and rails yep. and everything sort of like it's got little restrained areas where you can tie everything down. It's Coast Guard. Um, it's all inspected. And it looks like when it's back there in the creek next to my boat and <laughs> the other juniper boats that we hunt out of or yeah. that we cut sedge and stuff the blinds with, it just really looks way out of. It looks like it doesn't belong back there. It's right. just too nice. Right. Um, so right. when the people get on, they're really surprised by, like, it's a comfortable ride. I mean, there's some days where he can't, there's nothing he can do about it. He's got I'm a quarter sure. through, and then people get, they'll get sprayed a little bit, yeah. but it's usually part of, like, the experience. Yeah. And most days that he's running it, he only runs it May through September. So you're not going to come out and freeze. Yeah. Um, and you, he'd probably he probably has to get back before sundown. He does. Yeah. 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 So because um, I, I wouldn't be, want to be running two miles across the sound and in, in the dark. No, we, we, it's strictly a daytime thing. He even used to would um, entertain the idea of having them come up for our music series on Thursdays, but they had to leave so early that they were missing some of the music and some of the entertainment. So I yeah. think he opted to just keep his two trips a day, um, and then you can um, you ride through like a modified truck with seating on the back nice. through the 
through the creek along the impoundments where all the ducks live and, and during that time we're usually growing crops in them um, and the birds tend to be some of the year-round ducks um, so you're not necessarily seeing the, the most thick populations of wintering waterfowl but right. you're getting to see like a side of like the outer banks you really don't get to right. see otherwise because we don't have any there's not public don't go back through there right. we really try to limit the amount of traffic through there in order to keep the birds happy um, that and you know the folks that go back there to duck hunt it's not like a, a party back there for our customers they want to go back there and have some privacy for right. when they they're flying up from all over the country to try to hunt ducks it's a big deal for them so we try to limit the amount of abuse that this farm takes right we, we sure we got a lot of traffic up here and I like to let people walk around we put picnic tables around in the vineyard they can kind of walk around on a self-guided walk but when it comes to the back of the farm where it meets the marsh that's a pretty sensitive area so there's nothing paved back there gotcha. to minimize there's no um, vehicles on Dews Island it's golf cart right it's the only, only way to get around and, there. and just to get the, the listeners up to speed there uh, Kitty Hawk kites sponsors a or hosts a, a a shuttle boat that probably holds at least 12 people i mean you know i'm i'm thinking it's probably an inspected boat so it holds more than six people and they will pick you up and duck and they will shuttle you about two miles across the sound to this farm right here once they hit land they got to hop on the truck and the truck brings them the rest of the way to this facility right here the sanctuary vineyards uh, retail uh, operation and uh, I don't know, it just sounds real cool. And so like a two and a half hour or something yes. like that. So. And then once they're here, they're getting their own, uh, it's, a, it's a wine tasting that is built specifically for them. Cool. So it includes multiple vintages of wine that are not on our normal tasting sheet. It's conducted in a private area with its own guide. Very um, cool. So with Captain Brian brings them in here, they talk with George and Craig, the winemakers. Um, get a tasting with Elton or Karen up there and then Taylor helps them around they really feel like when they've left they've seen a winery from behind the curtain yeah and I think that's that's what they like nice very cool and it's great for locals too because um, I mean everything costs more nowadays but when you consider what you get to do you yeah. know if you're a local and you just want to run up the duck park the car and take the afternoon off you got the day off yeah I can't think of like a much better way yeah to see curry tuck since it's like impossible for people from their county to like cross the bridge <laughs> yeah. um, this way they can do it without crossing the bridge in yeah. their own vehicle and it's an adventure yeah very cool so kind of wrapping things up um i'll let you plug the uh Kershuk that's coming up this weekend right it is so tell us about that it's saturday this saturday november 26th uh roughly from like 11 30 to 5 but we're going to have the the main event is all-you-can-eat oysters. Uh, there's steam crabs while they last. There's barbecue, hush puppies, coleslaw, fixins. Um, then there's going to be, so that's all you can eat. Um, wow. Then there's going to be a souvenir glass for you to keep, and you can sample wine and beer. You can sample throughout the day. What kind of beer are you selling? Uh, for Saturday, we're going to have seven sounds from Elizabeth City. Right. They're relatively new, and then Swellza from KDH. Yep. Um, so that way you have um, Seven Sounds does like some really good traditional styles. Um, and I think, like I'd say, they have some of those beers where you may not want like the 
fruity pebble sour yeah whatever it is they're going to give you like some good sort of like straight up beers like you like and they have a couple cool um hazy beers as well i think they're bringing and then swells is always bringing something new and interesting okay so between the two of them you know because we got some folks that want they just want some nice lager to go with the oysters they right. do not want some kind of crazy beer um right. with barbecue and so we want to try to fix fit everybody in the same thing with the wine tasting there's about 15 to 20 different wines that are on the tasting sheet it's five hours so we hope that people can have like two meals if they pace themselves wow yeah so that's 60 dollars when you think about it that way if you show up early then yeah. you hang around and then have like another round it's quite a deal right <laughs> uh, but the tickets are online at the website you can get them at the winery um, they do sell out it does sell out well it's the tickets are 75 day of um so ideally in the next few days we hit the sellout mark before we get to the day of okay i don't like having to sell the tickets on the day of yeah. because um our friends bring the oysters in and the crabs are local um they do not you, you don't want to run out and right. so when i know how many people are here it really does help um but people like to wait for the weather but it's november so it's gonna be cold it's gonna be a little breezy right just tell everybody to wear a few layers. They can come inside and outside. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Any anything else you want to share about Sanctuary Vineyards? I think we covered a lot of territory there. No, I just I, I feel like it's a if you haven't been before, then then you should because it's part of like sort of a book we're writing here, like sort of a our own take on curry tuck, and it includes a lot of the old farm traditions. Um, but it's geared towards the future. So if you haven't seen it yet, you should come out and visit um, because you've had the wines in the past and you're like, I, I want you know, I haven't tried them in a while. You should come back because we've changed the wines every three to five years. Everything's okay. new. We're always redecorating. We're adding new amenities and activities on the farm. So yeah. um, come back through and enjoy it. The off season is great for locals because um, you've got the bar to yourself. Right, and you have regular, you still have music in the wintertime? Yeah, every Friday night. Uh, it's called Friday Night Live. We're open seven days a week. We're only going to close for Thanksgiving and Christmas. So um, we don't shut down for the winter. We're here just about every day. Yeah. Well, I love it. It's, it's country. It's, it's homey. It's, it's friendly and, and, you know, locally grown wine. It's, it's just great. So, John, I appreciate your time today. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Thanks for everything.